Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice Show. I'm Dr. Fujian Zain, and I'm a psychotherapist and an author and the originator of the Awareness Integration Theory. And hello to Sean, our director in our studio. This is a show about what matters most in our life, our minds, our thoughts, feelings, actions, relationships, and our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. Today, I will share the tip of the week about spring cleaning your mind. Yes, it's spring. That's what we got to do first. I will chat with Dr. Toby Travis, the founder of the Trust Ed. We will be talking about his latest book, Trust Ed, The Bridge to School Improvement. And then I will chat with Suzanne Falter. She's a podcast host and the author of the extremely busy Women's Guide to Self-Care. Her essays have appeared in Self, the New York Times, as well as O. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel and podcast and connect with me through any of the social medias, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, all of it. I'd love to hear from you. But first, here's the tip of the week. This is Dr. Fujian Zain, and this is the tip of the week. Spring cleaning for the mind, right? Here it is. The spring is here, and the best thing we could ever do is to clear our mind. It is time to let go of what does not work and take on new workable habits. Airing out your internal thought and emotions helps you declutter. This reorganization and purging can open room for new healthy thoughts, emotions that would lead to healthy behaviors and the creation of healthy outcomes. Start with breaking bad habits. Identify the habits that don't work for you anymore. Maybe it's eating not right, exercising or not exercising, smoking, alcohol, um, getting overly angry, not being able to handle your emotions, any of those, or anything that you could imagine, which you know is not working for you. Tackle one habit at a time. Yes, we all have a lot more unhealthy habits that we can imagine, but let's do it, identify it, list it, and let's take one at a time. Prioritize the ones that you don't want to do. Observe and identify any triggers, your triggers, and how to eliminate them from your surroundings, the ones that create the bad habits. For example, if you think you drink too much, then look at what triggers you. Is it the parties you're, you're around? Is it the alcohol that's around? Whatever you think that that would be the trigger. Formulate what you like to replace it with and be clear about the goal and make it measurable. Set a date to start with a new way of operating instead of the old habits. Journaling, it's wonderful because you get to be aware. You could go back, you could look at it. It releases all of it. All of it is wonderful. So begin journaling. And then every evening as you write, take a blue pen and circle all the negative thoughts and emotions. Now take another pen, maybe a green pen, and circle all the positive thoughts and emotions that you've already written. And then begin cultivating a positive thought about each of the negative ones. If you felt like a victim in any situation, begin to see your power in what you have done 
and you have handled it. See what you have learned and how you have become resilient. Be aware of the stories that you attach to people and different experiences versus the facts that are there. See the facts, identify which one of them are facts. Like if I took 10 other people there, they would see the same thing. And what part of it is your perception, your stories that you've assigned to it. Give yourself a limited time to vent your emotion. Don't uh, create an emotional uproar. If the emotion comes in, to see what the message is, vent it off and be done with it versus constantly cultivating it and pamper and nurture yourself because you deserve it. Now declutter your physical space. Start with one location or a closet at a time. Decluttering makes your anxiety go down. And it just like, because visually it's so pleasing to the eye, calms you down. Create a measurement rule for yourself. For example, if you have not used an item for one year or so, get rid of it. Ask yourself, is this item really useful? When was the last time that I used it? Does it have emotional value? So it's not useful, but it's useful to me because it reminds me of such and such a time, which I had an amazing um, time and I want to cherish it. Can that emotional value be assigned to something else? Or do you have to have all of these things that you have memory about? Could you have one item that represents all of those memories for you? How does keeping it make you feel? Does it make you feel like, oh my God, I really, really want to have this because it's, I feel safe and I feel pleasure? Or if it's not there and I haven't seen it because it's in the closet, so it's not in really in my life. It's just once in a while, if I ever go to the closet, I know that that's there. So if it's a feeling, a feeling of security and I want something, why is it in the closet then? And if it's in the closet, maybe it no longer holds that value that needs to be there immediately. How does letting it go make me feel, right? So how does having it make me feel? How does letting it go make me feel? Can I replace it if I change my mind? And get help from a friend who is not attached to the items and um, it makes it easier because every time you're like, no, oh my God, I can't let it go. A friend is like, come on, please. You haven't touched this for three years. It's been in a box in an attic, let it go. And then give away one item at a time to a friend or a charity. So this might help. The next one, notice your relationships. What behaviors in your relationship do you choose to change? The behavior in an intimate relationship you're committing to change. And maybe, you know, just constantly complaining, constantly being angry. Um, maybe those are the things you want to change in your relationship. The behavior or people in your friendship you're committing to change the behavior of people in your career or job you're committing to change, the behavior in your finances you're committing to change, and the behavior in the way you treat yourself that you're committing to change. So write them all down. And then next, generate gratitude by making a list of things that you're grateful for, even if it appears small. Begin each day by being grateful all of that is in front of you during the day. Each night, journal about all the great opportunities for working, learning, and relating you had all day. Appreciate your body, your character, 
and the people in your life. Allow the gift of forgiveness for yourself and people around you. Choose the person you commit to being with noticing your values and align your thoughts, emotions, and behaviors with your values. Create defined goals and set up your action plans in your calendar. Set up structures with people around you to inspire and support you to reach your goal. So spring is here. Welcome it with every aspect of your being and um, a newness and wishing you an amazing, amazing, amazing uh, new year and new spring. excited to have Dr. Toby Travis with me. He is the founder of Trust Ed, a framework for school improvement focused on developing trusted leaders. The application of his research serves as the basis for the Trust Ed School Leader 360 assessment, which schools worldwide utilize to inform school improvement initiatives. In addition, he's an executive consultant with the Global School Consulting Group an adjunct professor for the International Graduate Program of Educators in the State University of New York, College at Buffalo, and uh, an experienced teacher and administrator of uh, public school for 12, 12 schools. And his new book that we're going to be talking about is Trust at the Bridge to School Improvement. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Very happy to be here. Same here. I'm excited to have you with us. Um, you have talked, uh, you have actually done a, an amazing research at school. So I wanted to first um, ask you about your research and your findings. Well, yeah, years of research boils down to really one major fact, and that is that the number one indicator of school success is trusted leadership. And what's interesting about what we discovered in the research is it doesn't seem to matter how we measure or define success rather. So if your definition of success is student achievement levels, yes, the number one indicator is trusted leadership. If the measurement of success is teacher retention rates, yeah, number one indicator, trusted leaders. If it's community involvement or support or volunteerism, and the list really goes on and on. Uh, we just found over and over again that the number one indicator uh, for successful schools. And this also applies over in the corporate world as well. It's all about the leadership. You know, Maxwell is famous for saying it all rises and falls in leadership. Well, he's absolutely right. And the research bears it out. And if we don't get that right, everything falls apart. And so basically my call and work has been, let's make sure we are focused on what we need to focus on first as a foundation to everything we do, and that is ensuring there are high levels of trust in those that lead our organizations, our communities, our schools, and, um, and yeah, that's, that, that's been my passion and work for uh, the last well, dozen years or so. Dr. Travis, define trust in, in this perspective for us, because obviously when we think about trust, um, each person really have their own experience at it. You know, in relationships, we have a different types of a trust. Um, and does trust um, hold uh, a sense of accountability to the roles that we have? 
Is it like, you know, is it that we have expectations and that needs to be fulfilled? Is it that, you know, is the expectation some things that we have from before and come to uh, whether it's a company or a school system or any of it, or is it supposed to get created because we have an agreement together where this setting requires these type of um, services. And then if you tell me you're going to give me those services, then you need to create it so I can trust it. Can you define when you were doing research on trust, what, what were you calling trust? Yeah. And of course, the answer is yes, 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 yes. <laughs> the complexity of trust, and that's why this has taken years to kind of get our arms around. In fact, one of the exercises I'll do when I'm doing a live training is we use a word cloud and, and, uh, and everybody pulls out their phone and I'll say, okay, put in, I say the word trust you think of, and they'll put it in one to three words. And you see this word cloud form of all these. And, and I use it for that very purpose of emphasizing and illustrating this is complex. We use one small short word to mean a lot of things. So very quickly, and what the book bears out is in order to get our arms around a very complex concept, uh, we've identified six major components to trusted leadership. And using the framework of, of a bridge analogy to help us understand it. So there are foundational elements, just like a bridge has got to have a foundation. In, in leadership, there we're talking about beliefs and values. Uh, a bridge has a deck, you know, the part we drive all across. Well, that's all about order and clarity and on and on. So there, we've discovered, again, there are six major components. And even within those components, uh, one of them uh, we, we identify as the girders of the bridge, which really is all about contextualization and adapting. And what that means is trust looks different in different settings and in different relationships. So it's not as, as clean and as easy as, you know, this is it and it's always this way. Mm, no, the reality is we've got to contextualize. We've got to adapt. We've got to look at, okay, what is the setting, the surrounding, the relationships? Uh, but there are very specific components uh, or excuse me, um, competencies, skill sets that largely can be assessed, they can be developed. And when we see those skill sets and competencies in place, yeah, those people tend to be trusted as a general rule. So there are, again, uh, ways to assess, measure, intentionally develop. And, and that's the encouraging part about it, that it's not just some mysterious set of soft skills. There are very specific skill sets to be developed. So, for example, um, as you were doing this research in the school settings, uh, what is uh, the element of trust in that setting that is needed for, for example, uh, leaders to create the setting and then for, for the leaders to be able to trust the teachers and the environment they're creating for the students? for the teachers to be able to trust the leaders and um, that you know, are there for them to support them to create this for the students, for the students to trust the teachers and the leaders and for the parents to do all of this. What were some of the um, findings that you, you uh, got out of the research? Well, let me share as an example of the area that we see where trust is most frequently broken. And I think that will illustrate 
right to the point that you're asking. So as I mentioned just a moment ago, there needs to be a foundation to trust. And here what we're looking at are articulated values and beliefs. So in a school setting, you know, what do we believe about education or what quality education looks like? What do we believe about the role of the, the parent, the student, the teacher? And what are our shared values within that, that specific school, right? So we articulate all these things, we make sure that they are known uh, and, and, and identified. So that's the foundation. Well, a bridge also has a substructure. The function of a bridge's substructure is to connect and support everything in the bridge to its foundation. Well, in leadership, that substructure is ensuring we're connecting and supporting everything we're doing as a school to what we say we believe. And where trust falls apart is, let's say as an administrator, I say, no, teachers are our highest value. Right. Teachers are the essence of education. They are the essence of our school. Uh, it, it, it's not our technology. It's not our building. It's not even our curriculum. It is our teachers. I say that's our highest value. But then if my practice is not prioritizing budget resources, uh, operations of the school around meeting the needs of teachers as my highest priority, I'm not going to be trusted. And that's where it falls apart when we're not carrying through consistently in our practice what we say we believe. So, for example, if you're going around the United States and looking at the, the uh, schools that worked, the trust level worked, the uh, student achievement worked, and if the teachers felt like success, what type of fundamental um, uh, values had to be there so that you could uh, found a really uh, strong foundation to build what you say the bridge on? Well, again, there's many elements to that, but I, I'll give you a couple of examples. One is uh, the, the healthiest schools where we see this taking place, there are the, the greatest amounts of teacher autonomy as possible. In other words, hire professionals and treat them as professionals. So we reduce the micromanagement. And even though, yes, there's been lots of calls for accountability, and that's understood because it's either tuition dollars or tax dollars, yes, and yet let's hire people we trust and that are competent to do the job and then let them do it and, and, and treat them as professionals. So, you know, that sense of teacher autonomy, that's, that's a real win. And what we have found, so take it this way, when do we see students having the highest levels of achievement? When students are engaged and self-motivated. What's the number one factor for student motiva motivation and engagement? Teacher trusted relationship. So then we have to look at what gets the teacher involved and motivated. What's the number one indicator or number one factor? Trusted leadership. It all comes back to it. So if teachers are feeling well-supported, they are empowered, they're trusted by their leaders, well, then they're more likely to replicate that with their students and we see higher levels of engagement. So this idea of hire well, support well, which is getting more and more challenging as we're in the midst of a national teacher shortage. Actually, we've been in a shortage for years. The, this employment crisis has just exacerbated it and, and made it very, very public to everyone. And, um, and then, you know, support them as professionals. That, that's a key element. Well, one of the things that I've noticed working with a lot of families and, and the children um, is that everybody was exhausted even before. Um, before the COVID and then after COVID, everybody just burnt out. And you could see that coming across. You could see it from the leaders to, you know, the teachers, they were, um, they didn't feel supported in many layers. And then that also crossed over to 
the kids where uh, sometimes you experience uh, the children um, hours, like we talk about life balance. And then suddenly I work with a lot of teenagers, which they truly have to study almost 14 to 16 hours a day. Like not only they're going to school, the amount of homework, everything they have to do. And then we're wondering how come the anxiety level and depression level are sky high and our teenagers are getting panic attacks and have to be on pills now. But I work with these teens where they actually have to work almost four to five hours every evening, regardless of you know, the amount of hours that they were either on Zoom during the COVID or they were. So you saw this kind of a, a tiredness and then burnout in the whole system. Could, uh, is this also part of the like losing trust that somehow the system isn't working if their health is, is uh, being jeopardized? And uh, it's almost like love of learning goes away and school is a place for love of learning, right? Right, sure. I mean, where you see the highest levels of trust, you also see the, the highest levels of self-fulfillment, of actually enjoyment of the job or of the classroom. And right, you, you have to be very, very sensitive to uh, the capacity of teachers to be successful, the capacity of students to be successful. Uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about just being in tune with um, the river that's flowing again with the bridge analogy. Okay, what's what is that river that's flowing that we've got to get everybody across? And and that basically just means situational awareness. You know that we have situational awareness to our teachers' needs, our parents' needs, our, our students' needs, and and that's been very difficult for many many folks to navigate through the pandemic. We've been trying to look for solutions, and we've all had to develop greater skill sets. And what we're doing right now, right via Zoom and other platforms. Forms. And yet, uh, all of this creates, as you said, you know, kind of a sense of weariness. Uh, you, you just get, you get tired of constantly doing this. And, and back to how do you develop trust in the midst of that is anytime we place a new expectation on students or uh, as an administrator places a new expectation on teachers, then you have to look at, okay, what are we taking off the plate? You know, before we add another responsibility, I mean, here was what happened, you know, years ago when the No Child Left Behind uh, movement came out. Again, well-intended. I don't mean to beat up the politicians who, who, you know, and we can debate, you know, all kinds of things around that. But let's just say, assume, okay, it was well-intended. The problem was there was not a deep enough conversation. Okay, what are we going to take off teacher's plate? in order to do even just the paperwork involved in this new initiative. And here's frequently the problem that we find, not just in school improvement, but all kinds of organizational improvements. When we look at, oh, we wanna adopt this new best practice, wonderful, great. What are we gonna stop doing? What are we gonna take off so that we have the capacity to do this new initiative? That's a really important factor in developing high levels of trust. Professor Travis, what organizational restructuring is really needed within schools to support this greater success of teachers and therefore also students? Yeah, well, it's distributing leadership down to the closest level. So, you know, I think back my first principalship, I was a high school principal. I had 46 direct reports. There is a field of study called span of control theory. Uh, I, I prefer span of influence, but it was labeled span of control. And really what came out of that research is how effective are we as people managers 
to the number of people. So, and it looks a little bit different from industry to industry, but basically the research came down saying, no, most competent managers or supervisors can successfully manage and support six to 10 people max. That's, you know, that, that's, that's, that's who I can support well. So if we then look at reorganizing schools, organizations where we are working in teams of no more than six or 10 people, what we find there's, there's a collaboration that goes on, there's a level of depth of support that goes on. But when a, a school principal is expected to support to a deep level, 46 people, no, that you're setting them up for failure. It doesn't work. It's not humanly possible. So that's the kind of work that, that I will do with, with schools and organizations, just looking at, okay, how can we, how can we distribute leadership down to make so decisions are being made to the closest level? This is what, you know, working with districts. A lot of school districts, they make it very, very large. One that I'm thinking of has like 73 campuses in the district and they want to be equitable until they're rolling out some new initiative, wanting it to be equitable. So they kind of mandate it on all those campuses, really a big mistake, uh, because what we find is every school campus is unique. The demographics are unique. The needs are unique. So whatever the best practices or whatever the initiative, it really has to be, again, contextualized and adapt to that setting. And when that decision is made in that local setting, far, far greater chance of getting buy-in, far greater chance of people actually owning it and following through. But when it's just dictated from above or from a district office, now, largely what we found through the research is the larger an organization is, the more difficult it is to maintain high levels of trust because those decisions are not being vetted at that close local level. And that goes right down to even organizing, again, a school or a business looking at your divisions, your departments. Uh, let's push those decisions down as close to the action as possible. And then we see high levels of trust grow out of that. So with the basis of leadership that you're talking about, there has to be a set of high, uh, uh, highest priority be given to a group where uh, their need becomes the, um, the most important priority for all to go, right? So for example, um, I'm assuming that the priority of the student needs are there the first and then the ones who are delivering is the, the teachers, for example, and then the administrators. Does it feel like that, that it goes like, like the same thing with a business is the highest level of, of uh, the service we get first to the, you know, the priorities, the customers, and then the frontliners, and then it goes that way. Does, is that how the priority should be looked upon? Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> and with all uh, respect, um, that is the assumed approach that, that of many. Assumed, and that's yeah. really, again, where we stumble and fall. Now, in the education sector, if we're talking about student learning initiatives, and we're talking about, you know, how learning is delivered. Yes. And we're talking about the curriculum. Yeah. Student first, student first. We're talking about, let's make sure we are meeting students' needs for their future, not our past. Absolutely. But when we're talking about managing the organization of a school, now employees first every time, teachers first every time, because here's what we find when, and it was kind of what I was trying to say earlier, when teachers are well supported, engaged, given opportunity for development and growth, they are well supported. What we find is we then get highly engaged students. 
And so if teachers are happy, kids get happy. If kids get happy, parents are happy. And if parents are happy, then the administrators get to be happy at the end. But if you get that, that, that sequence out, you know, you put the needs of kids or the wishes of parents above teachers, you've now created a very toxic work environment where teachers don't feel valued. They're like, no, you're, you're, you're going to trump me with a parent's wish list every time, right? And, and same thing in the corporate setting. Uh, you have highly engaged and well-supported employees. They get innovative. We've seen innovation studies where, no, the happiest employees who aren't afraid to make mistakes are the most innovative. And they end up resulting in a higher return on the investment, if you will, for the company. It all comes down to high levels of trust, produces greater um, uh, production or service, whatever that looks like. So no, always, 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 when we're talking about organizational management, it's employees first. This reminds me of um, some of the college professors that I, I was speaking uh, with, and they said that due to some of the evaluative constructs that they've put in that um, teachers or professors were now being evaluated based on you know the uh, how the students were writing about them so for example did they get a good grade or something they would go and write write about the teacher and then other students would go look and the uh, it's almost like the professors then now had to babysit people's emotions versus really be true to what they were teaching uh -huh. So this is part of what I'm also hearing from you that uh, the integrity of, of the teachers and the professors, they have to also uh, be uh, the utmost priority or the, uh, the, the workers, the frontliners, all of those have to be the priority because those are the group that it, it funnels the uh, education to the group or the business values and the products to the group. So that's where the priority should really lie. Um, it, it's all about relationships, right? Yeah. It's that it, it is all about the human resource. So, in one minute, if we haven't touched upon something that you really want everybody to know, what would that be? Well, just to um, understand that trust obviously is the issue, and that there are resources to and tools available to assess trust levels, to provide um, data, if you will, to guide improvement plans that, that isn't a wish list. They're not just a bunch of soft skills. Again, we can assess it, we can build it, we can repair it if needed, and then we need to know how to maintain and protect it. But th this is the primary work, especially that organizational and school leaders need to be involved in, because this is also where we find school improvement initiatives, organization, organizational initiatives come through when schools and organizations focus on this priority. Beautiful. Trust Ed, everyone. The Bridge to School Improvement is the book by Dr. Toby Travis. And where could they find you, Dr. Travis? Well, the book is available on Amazon and then they can find me at trustedconsulting.org or trustedschool.org. Beautiful. Thank you so much for taking the time and being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And uh, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Everyone. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dr. Pujan Singh. And I'm excited to be with Suzanne Falter today. Um, 
After losing her daughter, Teal, in 2012, Suzanne discovered the healing power of self-care. She now hosts the Self-Care for Extremely Busy Women podcast and is the author of multiple self-help titles, including Extremely Busy Woman's Guide to Self-Care. Um, her essays have appeared in uh, different magazines, Self, More, Fitness, New Women, and the New York Times, and as well as O. Nice to have you with us today. Thanks, Fujana. I appreciate being here. Share with me and, and our audience about what changed your life dramatically in 2012 about your daughter. Okay, so in 2012, uh, the year began, I was a super stressed out, overtaxed, overachieving marketing consultant with a big business and uh, got really burned out and had to give the business up simultaneous with a relationship falling apart. And the home I had just moved into with that person, I uh, had to move out. So I suddenly had no business and no home. And within a month of that time or two months of that time, my 22-year-old daughter, Teal, who had come to live in the city that I was now living in, um, dropped dead from a medically unexplainable cardiac arrest. She died um, six days after collapsing from this cardiac arrest, uh, right after I had dinner with her. And at that point, I thought already my life had unraveled, but that ground everything to a halt. I mean, it was like, it was like the bottom dropped out completely. And what it did, Fujian, was it made me reassess everything in my life that I had really uh, not even paid attention to. I think I was coasting along, trying to get things done, being productive, trying to make money, trying to capitalize on success, you know, trying to max the moment. And what I was actually doing was ignoring very fundamental values that I had. I was doing work that I didn't even like particularly, but I was good at so I could make some money at it. I was um, allowing myself to be poorly treated in a relationship. And uh, generally I was pretty lost. So when Teal collapsed, it really forced me to do a massive reassessment of my life because I knew you know, I walked into that hospital room and I looked at her stretched out on the bed and there were all these machines and monitors all over her body. And I knew she would die. And I knew that I was going to be given this opportunity to reinvent myself and live my life in a way that she would be proud of me, that I had to really become a much better person than I was. And I was unsure how to do that. I just had to surrender to this process. So basically, I stopped working. And I kept trying to go back to work. But after a loss like that, your mind is really literally disabled by grief. And you're unable to do much of anything. So because I was so lost, I think, I was able to kind of push a reset button and really begin to pay attention to what I really needed. You know, in those first days, I remember a friend of mine said to me, what do you need? What do you need right now? And I didn't even know the answer to that question. I 
I had radio silence, you know? And because I didn't know the answer to the question, I was really confused about how to move forward with my life. But over time, as I allowed this grief to move through my life and as I allowed myself to surrender, I began to really become better and better equipped to move forward. And it actually took me two years of not working and just living in a very small, quiet way. You know, I ended up living in a friend's guest room for free and <laughs> taking care of her dog and just having this life that was about extremely simple things. And uh, I learned about self-care in that process. And a lot of it I learned from reading Teal's journals after her death because she was a very different sort of person. She was very much focused on self-care for herself and on being the best person she could be and on being really present, which was something I had no idea how to do. It seems like you had gone through a, a, a kind of living life automatically and then suddenly there was this huge shock that showed up to take you out of that automatic living and really um, exploring life uh, yeah. meant uh, to be living on, on every aspect and to lose someone so important to you. I can imagine um, completely being devastated by grief, but also what grief does to us is allows us to uh, question, question why's and how and uh, what is all this for and the purpose of it and what am I doing for, to myself and for myself and you know how am I taking care of myself in order to be a useful human being for others so I can see that it all uh, really brought you into a place of how important it is to take care of yourself and how important it was for Atil to take care of, her, of herself to to lose herself so young in, in, in uh, because yeah. of her physical body so yeah. What are some of the self-care uh, concepts that um, you have um, kind of come to see and, and experience for yourself um, out of all of this experience? Well, the whole concept of self-care for extremely busy women is that we get too busy. We get so wound up doing, as you said, taking, you know, focusing on being, getting things done in an automatic way that we have stopped paying attention to what we're actually doing and when we're doing it and why we're doing it. So one of the first things I really do suggest is that people slow down and they slow down to the point where they can hear themselves think and feel and they can begin to understand their own needs. By really focusing on your own needs, you allow yourself to know what it is that needs to happen. I really believe we're all wired from birth with a kind of a framework that tells us what our needs are. Little babies cry and they get their needs met. We are adults and we're so busy taking care of everybody else that we've lost that, but our instincts are still there and they're still warning us and guiding us and leading us to really be present with ourselves if we pay attention. So the first basic of self-care is to tune into yourself and to slow down. And sometimes that means you take a walk every day at lunch, or it might mean you meditate, or it might mean you do some breathing exercises, or it might mean you allow yourself to just do nothing. 
for a little while. <laughs> When's the last time any of us ever just did nothing? Well, I just did nothing yesterday, actually. But I've had to train myself to do nothing. And it sounds really counterproductive or counterintuitive. But the truth is, when you do begin to slow down, and you begin to honor your needs and go within and really look at your own internal alignment and how that how that is uh, being fed or, or starved, you begin to put pieces in place that actually make the rest of your life flow in a much more productive way. And you know, the second piece of this is to set better boundaries. Because one thing that was really true for me was I was trying to please everybody. I had no boundaries. I was being walked all over by certain people. And uh, I was quietly resentful, but not saying anything. And for a lot of very busy women, it's kind of a, you know, just sort of shut up and put up with it attitude. And when we actually say, well, well, no, I can't work past five o'clock. I really am going to need to go home now. And I will every day. You know, people actually adjust to that or you find a new job where it works. You know, I mean, the, the bottom line is you have to reclaim your power. And a lot of my work is about helping, helping um, busy women reclaim their power. Because if you reclaim your power, then much more is possible. And part of this also is about learning to ask for help. So that, of course, was something I really didn't know how to do during that period. I was very uh, ashamed of the degree to which I had fallen apart and I didn't really want people to know but I also really needed people to know because the only way I was going to get through this was with other people like me who could help me so I joined grief support group and I found a grief therapist and I I found some other types of support groups where people really were like me and I began to for the first time in my life feel like I belonged somewhere and sometimes we have no community around us. I didn't have any particular community. I had arrived in the Bay Area two years earlier, knowing nobody except a business partner. And uh, I had to reinvent. And by reinventing and slowly rebuilding, the whole thing turned around and started to come back together. And what, what is great is I began to build a much healthier, more productive life. And, you know, the fourth piece of this is once you get clear on what has to happen, you actually have to take action. It is okay to think about exercising or going for that meditative walk. But if we never do it, nothing changes. And if we are willing to get out of our comfort zone, things can change. And sometimes we have to ask for help. I mean, for me to get to the pool twice a week requires that I go swimming with my neighbor, Susan. <laughs> She's got to show up and pick me up and I go, or vice versa, I pick her up. But if we don't do it together, I am not going swimming twice a week. I can tell you right now. So some of this is about setting up systems that will support your self-care. You know, I have to have rewards for things like meditating five times a week. I mean, I, you know, I wish I had more <laughs> discipline or whatever, but I have to pay myself off with, you know, a lovely hot fudge Sunday or something. If I really meet that goal, yeah. we have to have uh, systems in place that will help us. Maybe we ask our spouse 
to get the kids up and get them dressed and off in the morning. Or, you know, we ask someone at work to cover for us every day when so we can go take a walk at lunchtime. Whatever it is, there are ways to make this happen. Because once you give yourself abundant self-care, what you're doing is you're nurturing your basic operating system and it can flow so much more smoothly that things that you didn't think were possible become possible. And the over the overcomplexity and the overproduction, all that stuff starts to fade away. But you have to take control of the situation and you have to get really clear on what the current reality is. So when we're looking at a busyness, um, it just seems like there's two layers. One, a person thinks that they have to because of their need. Another one is that they uh, create a self-importance and that I have to do this because there's importance into me being, being there. So there's an mm -hmm. importance in the identity that I've created, for example, that I have to be there. Obviously, for any reason, for example, losses, um, illnesses, a lot of different reasons where mm -hmm. that you know, delusion is completely taken away from us and we get it that no, um, the world does run without me being so busy and taking all mm -hmm. of the, you know, juggling all of that. And it's mm -hmm. important for me to be able to kind of like calm down and then mm -hmm. look at things from a different perspective versus just running around in the, uh, the wheel uh, the yep. rat wheel and constantly uh, thinking that that's all I got to do and, you know, focusing on very small layer versus coming out of that, uh, the wheel and kind of looking at the bigger picture and sometimes reevaluating and seeing maybe there was a time and a, and a place and for all of this where I started and does that is that even valid anymore? Do I even need this anymore after, you know, I gained that experience and I've been there and maybe my need is something else. And I think that kind of slowing down, allowing ourselves to hear ourself really, really matters um, mm -hmm. for, for us to go. You talk a lot about women. How is this different uh, than men? Since you emphasized on women, we also obviously have a lot of busy men. Hmm. Some of these things also yeah. to them, but I know there's an importance for you that you've talked about women. You know, I have to say, I just interviewed a guy on my own podcast about self-care for extremely busy men. And he was really talking to the point that I think is so very true, which is men are conditioned to believe they don't actually need self-care. That's, and you know, a lot of women are too, but men are like, no, 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 no to the self-care. That is weakness. That is something I will not need because, hey, I'm tough, I can take it. But that's not the point. The point is, to honor yourself and nurture the systems you've been given to live this life with. And the reason I like to focus on women, first of all, being a woman, I understand women, but I also uh, know that women become, part of the reason women become extremely busy is because they're filled with guilt and they're trying to live up to other people's expectations. And they're trying to meet a set of needs that um, other people are projecting on them. And often their mothers, a lot of the people who follow my work are mothers of small children or people caring for elders, people who just got a lot of responsibilities to begin with. And often they're talking about, I just have no time for X, Y, Z, 
I'm, I'm, you know, completely strapped out. But what I see is often a lot of overproduction. Now, this is not something I see with men. I see this specifically with women. Women often feel they have to compensate for perhaps even just being a woman and, and over accomplish or overachieve to prove their worth in the marketplace, in the business place. And you know, do men have to do that to the same degree? I don't know. But it's worth asking a question. Are you overproducing? Are you the person who's afraid to go home on time because you won't get the raise or the promotion when you actually notice the person who got the raise or promotion didn't even seem to be working that hard? You know, it's like, I've been there and observed that. And uh, the problem of being an overproducer is you exhaust yourself and you begin to burn out and once you've burned out, you're kind of of no good use to anybody, least of all yourself. And you're often left with stress-related illnesses and uh, just a generally unhappy way to live. Very much. Actually, culturally, I think that um, traditionally, culturally, um, a lot of men who had to produce and overproduce, uh, they did it in one area of life. Mm -hmm. and, and they thought that they would be married and their wife on a traditional level would be taking care of uh, the rest of the stuff. Right. But women, I, I think that uh, traditionally they had to manage everything of life and their husband or their mates or um, mm -hmm. their children. And then obviously the next level started, which is, is also working in corporate world and, you know, producing and creating, mm -hmm. uh, being partner in, in the finances also with their, their mates. So um, I think that women took much more balls in here that they felt like it mm -hmm. is my job to do where a lot of times for, for men, again, culturally, and we're not talking about every, obviously when we, we generalize, we're only generalizing and uh, it's not true yeah. for everyone. Uh, but there is this thing of, if I'm doing the other pieces, you know, the, except the financial piece, if I'm doing any of the other pieces, I can drop them off. I can drop them at any point. It, I don't have to. This is like a favor mm -hmm. that I'm doing. Where mm -hmm. with women, it's not a favor that they're doing. No. It's almost like I got, I got to juggle all these balls Mm -hmm. uh, and that's just the way it is. And it really, uh, you know, promotes kind of, uh, uh, it, it promotes that kind of overproductivity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, what is it that you are, um, what you talked about a system that people can set up. And I agree with you. I will not exercise unless I have a trainer or somebody that I got. Somebody's <laughs> expecting you to show up, right? Exactly. So I really felt that I'm like, yes, yes, that's the way I am. But to me, that is the motivation. Like if I understand what motivates me and I produce the system that it would motivate me, that's, that's the whole uh, concept of discipline. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the point mm -hmm. is that each one of us, you know, have a different desire. And if I, part of me understands how to give that to myself is, is the best. Um, and how have you done the kind of a self-care in your own life? Well, I mean, what I recommend to people is to build a schedule and it really, really feels uncomfortable and self-indulgent at first to have a, a self-care zone or notice, you know, book in a bunch of self-care activities or go into your calendar and notice how much or how little self-care is in your schedule. And I mean, write it in your schedule. 
It isn't just like at some point this afternoon, I will do yoga. It is at 3.30, I will do yoga. And uh, I like, you know, online calendars that have color-coded calendars that are specific to different subject matter. And I happen to have one for, for self-care. It is dark purple. And if I don't see enough dark purple on my calendar every week at a glance, I go in and add more. And, you know, you want to have a balance of things. You want to be able to, <coughs> excuse me, you want to be able to have a little alone time scheduled, particularly if you have kids and small children. Um, you will have kids clamoring over you every moment you could possibly be available. So if you don't carve out some time alone and a replacement for yourself to, you know, to be with your children, it will not happen. And actually, that's kind of a beautiful thing because by being, being forced to be organized about it, you will make it happen. So then what do you do with your alone time? Do you go for a walk? Do you sit and look out the window? Do you go for a facial or a massage? Does it matter? No, it doesn't really matter. But it matters that you do it. And often people will think it's very silly to schedule time to be alone. I do not think it is. I think it's critical because you've got to be able to hear yourself think. In the beginning of our interview, I talked about the need to hear what your needs are and you can't hear them if there's too much static and interference and um, you know other people's needs filling your airwaves. And it's funny because when I've tried to go, you know, work hundred hours and then at one point it's like, okay, I'm going on a vacation and on a vacation, I just don't do anything. And it's interesting that it takes a couple of days before your system calms down to that kind of like, oh, it's a different time. You know, it's like a Hawaii zone. <laughs> it's a different time for my body to handle. And then coming back, you could see the uh, feel kind of the stress as it's being pushed to, to operate in that level again. And it sounds like a resistance, like, no, I don't want to operate in that, in that mode again. And it's the time to really listen and, and look at what our body is mm -hmm. telling us and what your psyche is telling us that what is the mm -hmm. appropriate amount of uh, that's busyness that uh, our system requires. And at what age, because I think that different ages have different types of uh, speed and, and excitement and motivation and, you know, the energy level that goes. And I think I've noticed that my, as I've aged, um, my energy in doing a lot of things and reasons for doing those things have also changed completely. Right. So it's a constant reshuffling of uh, where am I and what have I brought into my world, which is just no longer needed. I don't mm -hmm. need it anymore. And I can restructure it and give it away or let it go, you know, either let it go mm -hmm. or just kind of give it away. And then what else has to come on my plate that satisfies me and matches my energy level in here. So mm -hmm. definitely everyone, Suzanne Falter, the extremely busy woman's guide to self-care, do less, achieve more and live the life you want. Um, in one minute or so that we have, anything we haven't touched upon that you really want everybody to know? I would love it if people would drop by my self-care for Extremely Busy Women podcast, where I talk to all kinds of people who know a lot more about all different aspects of self-care than I do, because it turns out self-care is many, many things beyond just tuning in 
to yourself. It can also be what the balance of your work is or what really lights you up in life. And I'm um, delighted to be able to be part of the self-care movement. So thank you for having me. Beautiful. It was a joy to have you. Everyone, go get the book and go listen to the podcast, The Extremely Busy Woman Guide to Self-Care, Suzanne Falter. Um, and for all of you who are out there, create an amazing life for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye-bye.